Well, if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, will you turn in them to Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue our look at Ephesians here on Sunday morning. And we're in Ephesians chapter 6. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. Turn left. Back on up. And we're in, going to be looking at verses 10 through 20, and then really diving in deep on verses 14 through 17 this morning. So let's go ahead and read them together. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wilds of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on your breastplate of righteousness, having shotted your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, and with it you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, the utterances may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mysteries of the gospel, which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Father, we ask now you speak to our hearts through your blessed word. Amen. Last time together, we started with a quote from Warren Worsby. And I love this quote, and I think every Christian here should remember these words. They are sooner or later, every believer discovers that a Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. And that he faces an enemy who is much stronger than he is, apart from the Lord. As Christians, we must identify that our primary enemies begin with the devil himself. The world uh, in which he dominates. And our own personal inner flesh that is drawn away by the enticements of the world. John said it this way, he said, For all that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We must be aware of these enemies, and we must prepare ourselves to face these enemies each and every day. And this morning, we're going to look at how to do that. Let us also understand that Paul equated the preparation for this encounter with our enemy as part of the maturity that a Christian displays in their life. Meaning that as a mature Christian, I understand that I must each and every day prepare myself for what I am about to face within the course of that day. The enemy, the devil, the system, the world system around me that draws me and entices me and challenges me and persecutes me for my faith in Christ. And then my own inner flesh that continuously wars against the Spirit. Therefore, not only shall I walk in the Spirit, therefore not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, but I also must prepare myself with the whole armor of God. 
And as we focus in, let us take a look at verse 14 together. And in the Greek language, Paul begins with a word, the word stand. This word stand in the Greek not only means to stand firmly in the position and place that you find yourself in, but it also indicates a forward momentum, meaning that in the process of standing, we will not retreat. We will not be pushed back, but look to stand and to retain the ground in which we have captured and that we must therefore stand firmly on each and every inch that we take for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how do we do that? How do we stand? How do we fulfill the uh, requirements of verse 13? Back up one with me, if you will, when Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. So, Paul, how do I do that? What is required? What is this whole armor of God that is needed? And how does it display itself? Well, he says here very clearly in verse 14. He says, Now therefore, gird your waist with truth, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Obviously, Paul is depicting for us, he's painting a picture for us. And most believe that when Paul was writing this letter, it is one of the epistles called the prison epistles. He was in prison when he wrote it. And it's indicated here, later in this portion of our text, that he was chained to a Roman guard. And many believe that he was simply observing the Roman guard that he, ha- that he uh, was chained to, and he was just going through the various elements of the armor in which that Roman soldier portrayed and displayed. And that's very possible. But there is also a second possibility. And this is talked about l- less frequently than the first. Either one, I think, adequately describes what Paul is saying. But as we look at this Roman soldier, there are elements of his armor that aren't displayed here in our picture of the whole armor of God. But let us understand, there are references in the Old Testament to these same elements. Did you know that? They're found in the book of Isaiah. And rather, if Paul pulled from the Roman soldier in which he saw or accompanied it with his understanding of Isaiah, either way, he is giving us this beautiful picture of how we should prepare ourselves to stand and to do all to stand. Let me show you, if I may, some of those wonderful verses in Isaiah. Let us begin in Isaiah fifty-nine seventeen. Notice this. For he put on the righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Again in Isaiah 52, we read these words. 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Or in Isaiah 21, Prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink, arise, you princes, anoint the shield. In Isaiah 59, 17 again, when we first saw the breastplate of righteousness, now we see the helmet of salvation also included. For he put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. And in verse 49, uh, 2 of Isaiah, and he was made my mouth, I'm sorry, excuse me, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And in the shadow of his hand, he was hidden, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. So all of the illusions that Paul draws from are also found in the book of Isaiah, which tells me that God in Christ was providing these elements as Messiah for his people, but also that we now practically must apply these things to our lives. We must gird ourselves. We must dress ourselves with these things if we are going to do all to stand in the current evil day in which we live. So let's take a look at each one of these pieces individually. Please remember that there is a twofold purpose to each one of these pieces. Number one, it is to allow us to stand the ground in which we are on, to stand firm. But it's also to allow us and give us forward momentum to take further ground for the kingdom of God. So remember that twofold uh, development in each and every one of these pieces of armor that Paul lists. And he begins with the belt of truth. The belt, of course, on the Roman soldier was the element of the armor that held everything else together. And it was secured by the belt, each and every piece of the armor that he had. Truth is invaluable for our assurance and our security. We have seen insecurity increase in our nation over the last few decades when the idea of absolute truth was eroded by secular thinking. Abandoning the concept that absolute truth even exists. And as we further undermined the ideas of absolute truth, more and more confusion and chaos proceeded and plagued our nation. It's because once you remove absolute truth, you then begin to set yourself on shifting sand. Philosophies, ideas change. You don't know if you're right or wrong. And as many have indicated today, they say it this way, I don't know who or what to believe anymore. We have been lied to for so long by so many important institutions and individuals in our nation that we are now in almost a position of being desensitized to everything that we're hearing. Isn't that true? 
And it's sad. It's sad to say that. But for the Christian, there is an absolute truth. That truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That truth was manifested. That truth was displayed. That truth walked amongst us. That truth was confirmed on the third day when He stepped out of the tomb. We have absolute truth. Jesus said that each and every one of us who will not only hear but do those things that He says will be like a wise man who establishes his house upon the rock. And then when the storms of life come, and in the language of Matthew, it's very descriptive. They come from the above. They come from the side. They come from beneath. The house will stand. But those who do not hear and those who do not do what Jesus has said are, are likened to those who build their house on sand. And great will be the fall of those homes. Of course, he's referring to the life of the individual when he speaks and uses the illustration of a home. Today, more than ever, if we are going to gain security in an insecure world, we must stand upon the truth of God's Word. And we need to be unapologetic for it. We need to uh, resist the temptation to appease and to compromise with the world when it comes to the essential elements of the truth of God's Word, such as the deity of Jesus Christ the infallibility of His Word. We need to say that I choose to stand on God's Word. We are those bumper stickers that were uh, very prevalent years ago that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And that really should be our attitude going forward. And as we have seen over the years, truth has been eroded away. People don't know who or what to believe in the abandonment of God's authority over their life, they now have to place some other type of authority in which to listen to that ultimately leads to that verse in which states everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. That good has become evil and evil has become good. All of this is in the vacuum of the abandonment of God. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Paul then proceeds this, or succeeds this, with the breastplate of righteousness. This examples the confidence that we are to have in the righteousness that we have obtained in and through Jesus Christ. Let us understand that when Satan comes against God's people, John tells us very clearly in 1 John that he is our Uh, He is the one that is our great accuser. And that Jesus Christ is our advocate because He has become the propitiation for our sin. As we are being accused before God the Father of our unrighteousness, it is Jesus Christ who stands up on our behalf and says, they're in me and I have clothed them with my righteousness. The breastplate, of course, guarded the heart of the soldier. And the vital organs. And as we continue through this world, and we are resisted by the devil, and we are accused before God, we know in our hearts that we are guilty, don't we? 
that if he was cast from heaven due to the pride that was contained within his heart, how much more should we be cast from the holy presence of God because of the filth of our sin before him? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he cleansed us from all unrighteousness. But if he just left it there, it would be what is called a zero-sum game. And therefore, we would be zero because there's not only sins of commission, those things we do that we shouldn't do, but there's also sins of omission, not doing what we should do. So what Jesus Christ did is not only did he cleanse us by his blood, but then he robed us with his righteousness. And as I stand before God the Father as guilty as sin, with my head hung in shame and guilt, It is Jesus Christ who stands before me and allows God the Father to see me in the perfection in which Christ is recreating within me. It's a beautiful thing. As Paul said earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, he writes, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And this confidence that we have in Christ was reestablished and confirmed in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God within him that's what christ has done for us he then follows this with the shoes or of the gospel for our footing is assured the roman soldier had these very interesting types of sandals they had nails on the bottom of them cleats they were roman cleats and it said nike on the side And it allowed the Roman soldier to stand his ground without easily being pushed backwards. It allowed him to stand on firm and solid ground. And they often were trained to find the areas of the battlefield where they could be the most secure. The gospel of Jesus Christ secures us. It secures us in the fashion that we, therefore, don't have to worry about our righteousness determining our salvation, for that righteousness has been settled in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Often when I talk to my Catholic friends about their salvation in Jesus Christ, they're unsure that eventually they will arrive in heaven. They believe in their hearts that they will not know so until they die. And either they're going to open their eyes up there, or down there, or in the Catholic tradition, somewhere in the middle. But think of how insecure that absolutely is. And how, you know, that would cause me a lot of worry and grief, wouldn't it? But because they believe they don't know for sure, because they don't know how their actions will be weighed before God. They continue in that uncertainty and don't know if they can truly know until they have arrived. But in Christ, it's not dependent on what I have done. It's completely dependent on what He has done on my behalf. And therefore, I can stand assured in the person of Jesus Christ. 
But the gospel also allows us to move forward. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that allows us to take further ground for the kingdom of God. As we share with each and every person and allow them the opportunity to receive the gospel, we take further ground for the kingdom of God. So see it in this way, the shoes of the gospel of peace allows us, number one, to stand in the security of the reconciliation that Christ has provided for us. And number two, it moves us forward as we offer the gospel to others and allowing them to receive it, that they too might experience the joy of a relationship with God through Christ. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18-21, through 21, some of my favorite verses in the New Testament, he says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, as has committed uh, to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Seeing ourselves as ambassadors for Jesus Christ gives us deep purpose in our Christian life. Meaning, I'm representing the King. And right now, in the time of chaos that we are currently living in, one of the greatest witnesses that we can be is a source of calm amongst the chaos. Resting in the peace, that peace that surpasses all understanding that God gives us in and through Christ. Allowing them to see that what is happening around us is, hasn't taken us by surprise, and though I think we're all surprised by how fast it has occurred. But the Bible has been telling us from the very beginning that things were going to get very difficult prior to the return of Jesus Christ. Right now, I believe that if we can be that source of calm, that source of peace, we will have earned the credibility in the eyes of those in whom we are sharing Christ with as we show them the love of Christ, as we uh, give them, show them the grace of Jesus Christ, the mercy of Jesus Christ. Hopefully that will encourage them to receive Christ as their Savior. But now Paul comes to the shield of faith. And notice that when he speaks of the shield of faith, faith, notice what he says in verse 16. He says, above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. There's a promise involved here. That it is the shield of our faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that's twofold in his meaning there. Number one, the faith to know that Jesus Christ has saved us based on his work and not ours. But I also believe it includes 
the confidence that we need to have to allow us to each and every day appropriate the promises of God given to us and standing upon those promises as if they were stepping stones taking us through this world. When Autumn was smaller, I can talk about her, she's in children's ministry today. When Autumn was smaller, one of her favorite things to do was to go to the water parks. And she loved the water parks. So we would search out all these little water parks and go for weekend trips or day-night trips and so forth. And one of her favorite things to do was to walk across these floating lily pads that they had. And you might have seen those. You walk across and the whole purpose is to get across. But of course, the moment you step on them, they start going like this and like this. And at that time, I think she weighed, you know, she was 12. And I think she weighed 13 pounds. And uh, she skipped across them like a, a mountain goat. Just like, I was like, oh, man. And she goes, okay, Dad, your turn. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm looking, where are the lifeguards? Okay, there's the traction board. There's the defibrillator over there. Okay, I've got my insurance card on me and so forth. And sure enough, each and every time, I would step on that first lily pad and I was a goner. And I realized that Autumn didn't really want to see me cross. She just wanted to see me fall, you know. You know. I mean, every time I would try, you know, after the first time, all the little kids would say, he's going again, and they would just clear the area, you know. And so often, when I see people walking through this life, walking on the journey that they find themselves within, apart from Christ, I think of that illustration, I think of that. Because they don't know if the next step that they're going to take is going to further them or to cause them to fall. But we as Christians, by faith, can appropriate the promises of God that steady those lily pads, if you will, through life. And it's by faith that we appropriate them, right? Simply believing because God has promised it to us that He will provide for it. He will fulfill it because He is able to, and to perform those things in which He has promised. Now, as God provides all of our needs, let us understand that though we in America would love our Bibles to say that He provides all of our wants, but He says, I'll provide all of your needs. So God is a lot like Walmart. If they don't have it, you don't need it. And if God hasn't provided it, then maybe we don't need it. But the promises that he gives us, the promises of peace, the promises of joy, the promises of the fruit of the Spirit, the promises of provision, the promises that if we will seek him first and his kingdom and all of its righteousness, then he will add everything else onto us that we need to take us through this life. So faith is not an option, it's imperative. That faith grows as we understand and grow in our knowledge of God. That's how our faith grows. It's not the size of your faith that matters. Jesus clearly told us that if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could remove mountains. But what does matter is that you have faith in the one in whom you should have faith. Faith in and of itself is not this magic power. It's not like, you know, Yoda using the force. 
Faith in and of itself, it, it doesn't mean anything. That faith is only sufficient in determining, in determining things in, in the regard in what it's attached to. I'm getting ahead of myself there. So as you get to know God, and specifically get to know His steadfast love, and get to know His faithfulness towards you, you then have a greater degree of ability to say, Lord, I will trust you. As one wrote, he says, as Satan shoots the fiery fiery darts at our hearts and minds, he uses lies and blasphemous thoughts, hateful thoughts about others, doubting and burning desires for sin. It is at that moment and that moment alone that we should then fall back on our faith in God's word and on the character of our Heavenly Father. It's so true. But then we move to the helmet of salvation. The helmet, of course, was the piece of equipment that would protect one's head. Here in the application, it seems to be protecting one's mind. We as Christians need to realize that God not only wants all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, but He also wants all of our mind. Remember Paul said that our transformation is taking place through the renewing of our mind in Jesus Christ. We have diminished the necessity of healthy doctrine here in the Church of America. But healthy doctrine leads to healthy Christians. And therefore, we must guard our mind with the healthy doctrine of of biblical Scripture. Not by the understandings of the world, And not even by the latest Christian book that is being released. We as Christians must daily be plumbing the depths of the Word of God to guard our hearts and more importantly our mind during this time. When Satan approached Eve in the garden, it was an intellectual temptation. When challenging her on her understanding of what God had actually said. Satan did the exact same thing when it came to the temptation of Jesus Christ, challenging Christ on what did God actually say. It was an issue of intellect. It was an issue of knowing God's word thoroughly. Eve fell because she wasn't certain of God's word, where Jesus Christ succeeded because he knew God's word thoroughly because he wrote it and therefore was able to withstand the temptations the devil brought about leading to the victory that he provided for us where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. We as Christians today must be men and women of the Word of God. We have to be. It's not not optional any longer. We are being inundated with ideas and philosophy and thinking that is challenging the very supremacy and also the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. In our lives as Christians, we must guard our minds with the helmet of salvation. As Paul wrote earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, notice what he says. He says, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Or I love what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. 
being led away by the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and notice not only the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. We must know and guard our heart with the helmet of salvation. Now, one of the areas that Satan will often try to tempt you within is doubting your salvation. And once he can bring you to the point where you're doubting your salvation, he has removed you from that that steady rock foundation and brought you into that shifting sand. That's why it's imperative that you and I know that if we are trusting Jesus Christ for our salvation and abiding in Him, walking with Him, we will fail from time to time. We will stumble. We will fall at time, from time to time. But if we get back up, if our heart's desire is after Jesus Christ and we desire His Word and fellowship of the saints, and we have a heart for God, even though our flesh hasn't yet caught up to that, the assurance that God is with us and has us in those beautiful hands. And those hands are so strong that He says, nothing shall snatch you out of My hand. Keeping us in the surety of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And lastly, of course, we come to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword that the Roman soldier used was a very specific sword. It was used as a weapon of offense. And it wasn't something that was merely swung and hoping it would hit something and because of its size and weight, it would devastate and destroy anything that it comes in contact with. This was a weapon of skill. It was a weapon that was used skillfully by the Roman soldier who was trained in the art of using it. And Paul is saying that you and I must be skilled in wheeling the Word of God. Of course, that is furthered when in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12, when the Hebrew writer wrote, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Greek word is there, makaira. And it's a word that is used, again, for a sword of skill, not just for a sword of what I call slaughter just wheeling it around haphazardly, you know, just literally spinning in a circle, seeing in whom you can destroy, but used skillfully and artfully. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God is extremely powerful. Again, we must be men and women of the Word, and we must use the Word of God skillfully. Truth in and of itself can often be cruel. But truth governed by love is the formula in which God would have us to proceed. Telling people what they need to hear, not just simply capitulating to what they want to hear, but doing so in the love of God. Telling them those necessary things, even when we don't want to and it's uncomfortable to do so. But the Word of God is working through the Spirit of God for the effectual working in which God wants to accomplish. Now, this is illustrated for us very clearly in Acts chapter 2. 
after Pentecost, Peter then began to preach to the crowds that had gathered who looked up and heard them speaking in new tongues and tongues of their language and said, wow, these guys must be drunk. They came to that spiritual conclusion very quickly. But after his message, God used the word in which Peter preached and this is what occurred in the hearts of those who heard it. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? How shall we become saved? As one wrote so beautifully, he wrote, The Spirit wrote the Word, and the Spirit wields the Word as we take it by faith and use it. A physical sword wounds to hurt and kill, while the sword of the Spirit wounds to heal and to give life. But when we use the sword against Satan, we are out to deal him a blow that will cripple him and keep him from hindering God's work. God's Word is incredibly powerful through the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Now next week we'll look how all of this is tied into prayer, but I want to end with this, if I may. Do you realize that in the whole armor of God we have a description once again of Jesus Christ? That all that we need to equip us with this whole armor of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ Himself. If I may, let me show you through the Word of God. In John 14, 6, notice that Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, notice again, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he is the truth. He is righteousness. Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Not only that, but Luke said, as Simeon prophesied over the new birth of the Messiah, he said, for my eyes have seen your salvation, Lord. And of course, in John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And of course, John then later says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The armor of God found in the person of Jesus Christ to allow us to stand and to do all that we can do to stand in these wicked days, evil days in which we live. Not only to retain the ground in which we have taken, but to further it for the gospel of Jesus Christ in and through the power of His Spirit and equipped with the whole armor of God.